Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 41. Psalm 41, hear now the word of our God. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Our final psalm in our journey through book one of the Psalter is here in Psalm 41. Now, if you, if you just read it as an, an individual lament over sickness and trouble, then you may have some trouble trying to figure out how to sing this. I, I hope that none of you have enemies who would rejoice over your death. So that, that part of the psalm may seem like, how do, how do we sing this? And I, I hope that few of us are wishing that God would raise us up so that we can repay our enemies for all their the, the malicious betrayals. What is, how do we sing this? If, if you read Psalm 41 just as a generic individual lament, then Psalm 41 sounds like a mean, nasty song that Christians shouldn't sing. And, I mean, actually, there are people who actually say that because they just read Psalm 41 as this sort of, oh, that was, that, that was the Old Testament. That's not for today. But Jesus tells us that Psalm 41 is about himself. That line about my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus says in John 13, which I'll read in just a moment, that this scripture was fulfilled by Judas. And that's why Psalm 41 has the title that it does. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Yes, this song should be sung in corporate worship, but it should be sung in the voice of David. And uh, if you think back to David's life, we're not told exactly which moment this was, but there are a few that could work. But the close friend in whom I trusted of verse 9, David certainly had a moment like that in his life. It was when Ahithophel, his close friend and trusted counselor, uh, joined Absalom's rebellion. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. So if you think through what's going on here, so Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather and uh, 
he was also a close friend and trusted advisor of the king who was legendary for his wise counsel. Second Samuel 16.23 says that in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. When Ahithophel speaks, it's not just people listen. It's the, when Ahithophel speaks, ah, this is like a prophet speaking forth the word of the Lord. And so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So when Absalom starts his rebellion, he first wins over Ahithophel, knowing this would hurt his father more than anything else. Now, when you read the story of David and Absalom's rebellion and Ahithophel's counsel, and then you read the gospel accounts in parallel... David left Jerusalem, crossing the brook Kidron, 2 Samuel 15, 23, going up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, 2 Samuel 15, 30, where he hears of the betrayal of Ahithophel. In John 18, we are told that after Jesus went out of the city, he took his disciples across the Kidron, and in Matthew's gospel, we're told that they went up the Mount of Olives. In other words, Jesus is retracing the steps of David on the night that he heard of Ahithophel's betrayal. On the very night that Jesus is betrayed by Judas. Jesus knows the story of David and Ahithophel. He understands that he is called to succeed where David had failed. He understands that Psalm 41 is all about him. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 41 with Judas in the role of Ahithophel because Jesus understands that this is where God has put him. He is the one who will sing Psalm 41 at the Last Supper. He is the one who will sing Psalm 41 as the one who is going to take upon himself all of the betrayals and all of the curses of all of history. And that's why we get to sing Psalm 41 with Jesus. Our New Testament lesson comes from John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. 
for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. John's gospel uses the language of light and darkness very intentionally. So when it says, after Judas went out, John adds, and it was night. This is your hour, when darkness reigns. Darkness, betrayal, death. And that's very much where David is in Psalm 41. It's why Psalm 41 is very much a psalm of the Last Supper, a psalm of, of, of Jesus' darkest night. The opening words of Psalm 41 make it clear that if you want God to help you, if you want the Lord to deliver you from your troubles then you need to be the sort of person that takes heed for the poor. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. It's the same principle that Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you're not willing to forgive others, well then, don't bother asking God to forgive you. If you're unwilling to help others, then don't ask God for help. 
As Jesus put it in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You should treat other people the way that you want God to treat you. Or to put it another way, you can expect God to treat you the way you treat others. Ouch. Part of, part of our problem is that we tend to be very charitable with respect to ourselves. So we tend to think, oh, I treat others really well. Now, maybe their experience of us isn't the same. So that's where the importance of listening well. And of course, God is gracious and does not treat us as we deserve. Ah, yes. So that's how we should treat others and not treat them the way they deserve. Psalm 41 opens with a blessing on the one who considers the poor. And since this is a psalm of David, we need to see the king at the center of this psalm. After all, in Israel, the king is supposed to take thought for the poor. The king is the defender of the weak and the helpless. And certainly all Israelites were supposed to take thought for the poor. But the king is supposed to be all that Israel has failed to be. The king, the son of David, is called to be the defender of the weak. Now, as your footnote in your ESV may point out, the word translated poor can also mean weak. And it's actually important to think about poverty and weakness as being very much related terms. As we've often seen, Scripture does not think of poverty primarily in terms of lack of stuff, but rather in terms of lack of power. Poverty has very little to do with how much money you have and has a whole lot to do with what is your position in relationship to others. The poor, the weak, the helpless are those who lack access to power and influence. So not surprisingly, they also lack stuff. I mean, if you give a poor man a million dollars, that may not actually help. You might think, oh, but he'll build... Well, but a poor man does not have access to, to the... So he'll, he'll lose that million dollars really fast because he doesn't have the... Now, a million dollars may give him access to be able to buy power, but if he, if he doesn't, the million dollars won't actually solve his problem, which... Part of, part of this, actually, as our servant leadership training class is going through uh, Tim Keller's book, Ministries of Mercy, and uh, Fickert and Corbett's book on When Helping Hurts, these, uh, actually, if anybody's interested in talking about these principles and learning more about this, anybody's welcome to join the class. So we, we meet on Sunday evenings um, if twice a month. So let me, let me know if you're interested, and I'll tell you which days. Um, but the solution to poverty is not found primarily in giving people stuff, but in connecting them to, you might say, power and influence. The way that you consider the poor, if you think about what does David do as king in helping the poor, it's the way you take thought for the weak is by showing concern for their situation, learning about the issues they face, and then helping them deal with their issues. And sometimes that takes money, but money is not a solution. Money is a tool towards the solution. And that's where my observation is that, is that 
in the modern world, we oftentimes hear people saying, ah, God cares for the poor, and so should we. And that's not entirely a false statement. It's actually a true statement, but it's missing the, the heart of God's concern for the poor. How does God care for the poor? He takes thought and delivers his anointed king, our Lord Jesus. And through the deliverance of the Messiah, through the deliverance of the Christ, who is the blessed one of Psalm 41, then he delivers the poor in Christ. The Christian statement would be that God cares for the poor and has sent his only begotten son to become the poor and needy one who needed deliverance, resurrection. And so King Jesus takes thought for the poor and needy in order to deliver them. And so discipleship means reorienting our lives around that kingdom priority of deliverance, salvation, resurrection. There's a way in which all this comes together. And we've, our, our basic problem is that we are alienated from God. You can think about this in terms of there are four, four alienations, but the basic one is we're alienated from God. And because we're alienated from God, we are also alienated from others, alienated from the creation, and indeed alienated from ourselves. And those four alienations, most, much of the modern world is, oh, We've got all sorts of science and technology that can help resolve our alienation from creation. So we've got all these great medicines. And I, I agree, they're great medicines. They do lots of good work. And so now we've, we've, we've healed all diseases, right? And now we've fixed that. We've, we're fixed. No, we're not. And the funny thing is, we, we keep solving all these problems. And yay, God calls us to do this. I'm not against science and technology here. We're doing well. We're solving problems. But have you noticed that every time we solve a problem, we create another one? This is a fallen, broken world. That's going to keep happening. I'm not saying that every solution... I'm not saying, therefore, we don't try to solve them. I'm really happy that polio is no longer ravaging the world. That's a good thing. But just recognize that we're not going to fix everything. We're going to keep working on doing, trying to do well in this area of science and technology, and that's a good thing. But we're not going to fix everything because our fundamental problem isn't something that can be fixed by science and technology. Our fundamental problem is our alienation with God. And, and you could go through all the other alienations, alienation from self. There's lots of counseling techniques and therapies that can be helpful for resolving and figuring out things alienation from self, our, our problems with it, that can be useful. But again, if we're missing our connection to God, we're not really going to get at the heart of our problem with ourselves and our interpersonal relationships. Likewise, we're going to keep having problems in interpersonal relations as long as our relation with God is not working right, which since we're sinners means this is going to be something that we're, we're it's, our, 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 the point is that we're, our fundamental poverty is a poverty of soul. Our, it's a deficiency in our relationship with the living and true God. And since the Lord is our pattern in how to help the poor and weak, notice how the Lord helps the king in verse 2. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. 
When the king, the son of David, does what the king is called to do, then the Lord protects him and keeps him alive, and he is called blessed in the land. Now, here at the end of book one, we're running into this language of the blessed man a lot. That's where book one started. The opening words of the Psalter, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. David is claiming that he is the blessed man. In Psalm 1, the blessed man is the one who meditates on God's law, who delights on God's word. Last time we heard in Psalm 40, David saying, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I am the blessed man of Psalm 1. And in Psalm 2, the son of David is proclaimed to be the son of God, the blessed one. And Psalm 2 concludes, blessed are those who take refuge in him, in the king, in the son of David. And now David reminds us that the blessed man is the one who considers the poor. And he is called blessed in the land. And Psalm 41 will end by declaring the Lord himself is blessed. The beginning and the end of this psalm, indeed the beginning and end of book one of the Psalter, are brought together when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, the eternally blessed one. Considered the poor, and so he who was rich beyond all measure for our sake became poor. How did God consider the poor? How did God consider the weak and the helpless? By becoming weak and helpless by joining himself to our humanity. And verse three speaks of the sickness of the, of the blessed one. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed in his illness. You restore him to full health. Why does God sustain him? Why does God restore him to full health? Because he is the blessed one, the one who took thought for the poor and helped the weak and helpless. The reason why God requires this of us is because he himself is like this. God cares for the poor and needy. He helps the weak and helpless. And so those who are the, the, who would live as the image and likeness of God then must be like him. And that's why we turn in verses 4 through 10 to focus on the particular situation, what I've entitled, but what about me? And verse 4 talks about you might say the relationship between sin and sickness as for me i said oh lord be gracious to me heal me for i have sinned against you so what, what is this saying about the relationship between sin and sickness now it's not saying that sickness is always a result of your sin now on the other hand it's not true that sickness is never a result of your sin it's entirely you know, there are times when you can draw a very clear connection between you did that and this happened. And that's, there's a one-to-one correspondence. When we sin against God, we are living in a manner contrary to the world he made. So we should not be surprised when sinful patterns result in sickness and misery. So that's, it's just worth noting that these four alienations are connected when we sin against God, when we don't live the way he says, that has repercussions in all these other areas. Now, that doesn't make it easy to draw one-to-one relations because it's not always your sin that results in your sickness. Sometimes it might have been somebody else's sin that resulted in your sickness. And sometimes it might be not anybody's sin in particular that resulted in your sickness, but we live in a fallen world where things happen. 
And, but, when, but nonetheless, there is a connection between sin and sickness. James talks about the same thing in James 5 when he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice the if. James does not assume that all sickness is a result of your sin. But if it does, then confessing your sins to one another is an essential part of healing. Let me say that again. Confessing your sins to one another is an essential part of healing. Because we don't, uh, I appreciate Glenn's Sunday school class today. We, we don't want to divide our world up into little bits and pieces where we, we're just sort of like, oh, sickness is over here and sin is over there. That our, our relationship with nature is one thing, that's, that's science. And then our relationship with others, oh, that's, yeah. and our relationship, we don't divide everything. No, actually, everything's connected. You cannot divide your life into isolated compartments. You, you cannot divide your body from your soul. Well, actually, you can, that's called death. But body and soul are bound intimately together. And the healing of body and soul are also bound intimately together. That's called resurrection. The resurrection is the most profound healing of body and soul there is. And that's why resurrection life, resurrection power, has also cannot be isolated from everything else. The power of the resurrection is something that is already at work in you. And that means the power of the resurrection is at work in the healing of the body, is at work in the healing of relationships, is at work in the healing of, of my own soul being reintegrated back to what, who God made me to be. God created us to be whole. But when we are not rightly related to him, then we are disintegrating. We're falling apart. And our modern world encourages us to pull everything apart and have all these different little compartments in our lives. Have you ever had a broken relationship gnaw at you? It eats away at you. It affects your soul, yes, but it also affects your body. The stresses of broken relationships invariably affect your body as well. That's why David says, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Notice David understands that his sin is against God. If, if he's dealing with a situation with broken relationships with people, Ahithophel, Absalom. But he recognizes my sin is against God. If, whenever you're dealing with relational conflict, until you see how you have sinned against God and that that is the central problem here, all of your attempts to try to fix the horizontal will quite literally go sideways. Because until, until you see, I have sinned against you, that's what's actually at the heart of everything else. And so David says, my sin has brought this situation upon me. And it's the same sin 
if we're right about this being about Ahithophel and Absalom, it was the same sin David and Bathsheba that in Psalm 51, David says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, many years later, David is seeing the fruit and consequences of his sin come back again. Now, we, we saw earlier that Jesus is the singer of Psalm 41. How does Jesus pray Psalm uh, verse 4? How does Jesus say, heal me for I have sinned against you? Um, Theodoret in the, in the fourth century said very nicely, Jesus says, I am the one who is poor, who embraced voluntary poverty, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who makes my own the sufferings of human beings, who, though having committed no sin, offers the prayer for human nature as nature's first fruits. Jesus takes the, these words into his own lips because as he comes as the sin offering, he takes the sin of the world upon himself. Of course, we can sing verse 4 very easily because we're just confessing the truth about ourselves. We plead with God to heal us because we have sinned against him. And God will heal you if only you admit your wound. We need to learn to say the same thing about ourselves that God says about us. That's what it means to confess, to say with someone else, to, to say the same thing as someone else. When we confess our sins, we are saying that, that what God says about us is right, both in terms of our sin, but then also in terms of our salvation. Because that's when, when we've confessed our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it is right that after you have been forgiven for your sins to say, so therefore I am no longer a sinner because my sins have been forgiven. And that confession is essential for understanding what's going on in verses five through seven, because what God says about me is one thing. My enemies, they're saying something else. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Now, if, if you try to start with your own situation here, you'll invariably go off the rails. You are included in this song, but only in Christ. Now, I say only as though that limits your participation. No, dear friends, when you learn to sing Psalm 41 in Christ, you get to fully participate in Psalm 41. Because this is about the king, the son of David. And who are the enemies he's talking about? Well, the enemies of God's kingdom have always sought to destroy the king. They have always tried to overthrow the kingdom of Christ. And we see this clearly in the life of our Lord Jesus, and we continue to see this in the church as well. I appreciate how Augustine says this in his sermon on this psalm. Our Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven, but in us, his members, he is still, he, Jesus, is still struggling on earth. For the devil stirred up persecution against the church to destroy the name of Christ. The martyrs were killed so that Christ might suffer anew, not in himself, but in his body. The Christians multiplied and multiplied again, and the expectations of their enemies who asked, when will he die and his name perish, were not fulfilled. But the same thing is still being said today. Still they are asking, when will he die and his name perish? 
They were wrong about Jesus. And they were wrong about the church and the Roman Empire. They will always be wrong about the church so long as the church clings to Jesus. The name of Jesus will never perish because he sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father forever. But even he had to pass through suffering and misery and death. And that's why we come to Judas in verses 8 and 9. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. As we saw earlier, this is likely Ahithophel in David's view. But as Jesus approaches his hour, he sees the parallel between Ahithophel and Judas. And he sees how Psalm 41 is fulfilled once more and indeed is fulfilled in its fullest sense. There's nothing quite like betrayal when someone you trusted turns against you. We've all had people fail us. We've all had people prove to be weak and untrustworthy. And sometimes that feels like betrayal. But verse 9 is talking about deliberate, hostile, intentional betrayal. It's talking about Judas and Ahithophel, people who knew exactly how much their treason would hurt and did it anyway. I want you to think for a moment about Ahithophel and Judas. Why did Ahithophel betray David? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Now, we're not given any insight into their secret thoughts and motives. But we know enough about human motivation, given the way we see how we deceive ourselves. It's, it's likely... I mean, have you ever known anyone to do anything that they thought was, ah, oh, this is a dastardly deed, that's what I'm going to do? Maybe. Maybe there are some people out there who actually do dastardly deeds because they want to be dastardly. But from the people that you know personally and have had conversations with about why they did what they did, my experience is almost everyone does what they do because they think it's a good idea. What's Ahithophel doing after all? He's the grandfather of Bathsheba. He couldn't have been happy about how David murdered his granddaughter's husband. And then, I mean, sure, in one sense, okay, great. Now my granddaughter's married to the king. Yeah, but that's not the way to do this. He may have been convinced that David's Sin had resulted in David didn't deserve the throne anymore. God's promise, after all, is for the son of David. So why not transfer his allegiance to Absalom, the son of David? Now, Judas may be more challenging. I mean, we're told that Satan entered Judas. But then again, when the serpent tempted Eve, he tempted her with a very subtle falsehood. Most of what he said was true. And what she loved about his statement was the truth in it. You will be like God. She just overlooked the lie. Now, isn't that what happens when we believe lies? It's not that we love the lie at first. We love that little bit of truth that we're believing that coats the lie. And then we start playing with the lie, deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're still loving the truth. And so, yes, actually, Judas could easily have deceived himself into thinking that he was honoring and serving God that night. 
What if Judas thought that betraying Jesus would, that Jesus is taking too long. He's here to lead the revolution against Rome and establish the kingdom. Maybe this is my part in bringing about the kingdom of God. That if I just nudge him a little bit, that'll force him to declare himself and then we'll, then we'll see the coming kingdom of God. What if Judas thought he was helping Jesus become who Jesus said he was? Only problem is Judas misunderstood. There was a lie that was at the heart of his. So, but part of it is when you start to think about why do people do what they do? It's very rarely because they want to do some dastardly deed. It's usually because they think they're aiming at something good. Every sin starts with faith, hope, and love. The problem is it's faith in something other than what God says. Hope in something other than what God promises. Love for something other than the Lord God himself. And that's why our Lord Jesus says in verse 10, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. If our if our fundamental problem is that our faith, our hope, and our love have been distorted and perverted, then the only solution is for the Lord himself to be gracious and deliver us. But notice the result, raise me up that I may repay them. I mean, what does Jesus do when he is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God? Well, he repays his enemies. The king is called to bring justice for the weak and the helpless. How do you bring justice for the weak and the helpless? It means you've got to do something about the oppressors. You cannot bring justice for the oppressed without breaking the arm of the oppressor. Now, we love it when the oppressor repents and follows Jesus. It's why we love telling the story of Saul of Tarsus, how he becomes Paul the Apostle who preaches the gospel. But if Saul of Tarsus does not repent... If the Lord Jesus Christ had not destroyed him on the road to Damascus, and destroyed him is the right way to put it, when the Lord Jesus revealed himself to Saul on the road to Damascus, he destroyed Saul. And Saul was crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Paul says. If Jesus had not done that to Saul on the road to Damascus, then Jesus would have had to do, do it some other way. Because there is no, if, if, if Jesus allows people to keep destroying his church forever, then the gospel will never go forth. Those who are hostile to the kingdom of Christ must either be destroyed by baptism into Christ's death or else be destroyed by the fire of God's wrath. In the end, there really are no other options. That's why the scripture says, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Therefore, the Lord is the one who brings vengeance against his foes. It's the reason why you and I should not take vengeance against those who wrong us. Not because vengeance is inherently wrong. Vengeance is right. That's why it belongs to the Lord. Because he is the one who can be trusted to get it right. I like... I like the story told by one of the desert fathers of a, a monk who, was, who had a real anger problem. And he was so furious with what another monk had done to him that he, he went to his superior and told him, I can't put up with this anymore. I'm going to go take him down. 
ancient, ancient Coptic versus modern English. Well, let's call it, take him down. His superior said, yes, I, I see your point. Let us pray. Oh God, we don't need you for this one. We can take vengeance for ourselves. Amen. Silence. The young monk realized his fault and fell at his superior's knees and asked forgiveness. Because what happens? Vengeance, if we take it into our own hands, presupposes a godless world. There is no God who will ever take care of this, so I have to handle it myself. But David says, raise me up that I may repay them. Because David understands he is talking about what, where is this story going? It's going to the Lord Jesus. It's going to the one, I mean, by the end of book one of the Psalms, we've, uh, as we saw last time in Psalm 40, the only way that David's story is brought to its full conclusion is if God himself comes in our flesh, if the son of God becomes the son of David and brings about the salvation that God had promised. And Psalm 41 then concludes with a prayer of confidence. By this, I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. It may seem strange at first that we see in the same psalm an admission of sin and now a declaration of integrity, but that is the point of repentance. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have been cleansed of all unrighteousness, what is left? If all of your disintegration has been reintegrated, what's left? Integrity. You're whole. After all, think about Jesus. How can Jesus sing this song in John 13? Well, Jesus says that verse 9 was about Judas, and yet the same voice in verse 4 plainly confesses sin. But Jesus sings this song in order for us to sing it with him. Because it's only if Jesus takes our sin upon himself, only if he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become whole, that we might regain our integrity. And as we are re reoriented back to our true relationship to God, that all these other parts of our lives might be drawn back together into wholeness in him. So in verse four, Jesus confesses sin only because our sins were imputed to him. And in verse 12, we confess integrity only because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Apart from Jesus, we have no integrity. Apart from Jesus, we are disintegrating. We are falling apart. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have been made whole again by faith. And our bodies have not yet experienced this fully. God has promised that he will set us in his presence forever. And in the resurrection of Jesus, he has begun this good work. And he who has begun this good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why the editors of Psalm, the Psalms thought that Psalm 41 was such a good place to end book one. Book one ends with the son of David sitting in the presence of God forever. That's the way the kingdom of God should be. And in Jesus, that is now true forever. And so we declare the final blessing of book one. 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. In one sense, this is the concluding benediction to the whole of book one. We started with the blessed man of Psalm 1. But as we saw throughout the last 41 Psalms, the blessed man of Psalm 1 can only be the son of David. And we also have begun to see that the son of David is the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. Because when the blessed Lord, the God of Israel, becomes the blessed man, the son of David, only then can we rest secure in the steadfast love of God forever. Because the reason why Psalm 41 is a song for the Last Supper is, is not ultimately because of Ahithophel or Judas, but because the Last Supper was where our Lord Jesus pointed us forward to the wedding supper. The Last Supper isn't really the Last Supper. It was just the medium supper. The Last Supper is the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's why this song points us there. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you that you have called us to yourself in Jesus, that you have not left us abandoned in the middle of the story with no idea of where we're going, but you have shown us in the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus, that what you have begun in his resurrection, what you have begun in pouring out your spirit upon us, you will bring to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that even in this age, you are beginning to make known your resurrection power, that the presence of your spirit with us is the presence of the resurrected Christ with us. And therefore, as your resurrection power continues its work in us, help us to live by faith, to live in our hope in you, to live in love for you and for one another. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.